I had become kind of this de facto mom blogger. And it was this wonderful, incredible community. But it's also a deeply unsettling place to live, to commodify your life and your body. Hello and welcome to Movie Phone. I'm Adrian Dom. <laughs> the kids don't know what Movie Phone is. Okay, that, that joke did not age. I'm Laura Good. And this is actually this the, is feminist the feminist present. present, in case you hadn't figured that out. What have you been reading, watching, or listening to? I just finished a new Tana French over the, <gasps> the holiday. I've break. been wanting to read that too. How was it? It's good. It's not a mystery mystery. It's more like, okay. it feels like it belongs in a Western genre more. I cracked it open thinking I'm going to find out who done it. And I did find out who done it, but it didn't matter who done it. I didn't read reviews thinking it was going to be a mystery. Mm. And if I'd read reviews, they would be like, oh, this is not a mystery. And I would have been like, oh, this is still a very good novel. I'm so glad you mentioned the field of book reviewing because I noticed as I was reading my New York Times over the weekend that a little book I like to call What Tech Calls Thinking made it into the New York Times like recommended books to buy people for yes. capitalism. I don't remember what exactly the list was, but I saw your name in the New York Times, sir, and I fist pumped. I was I was there. It was um, I, I too fist pumped for about 85% of that yeah. review. Yeah, it echoed your previous glowing review, but that was pretty exciting and definitely grounds for a yeah, free plug yeah. for people to buy your book for their stocking stuffers. Yeah, it is the perfect stocking stuffer. Uh, it's depressing, and, <laughs> but it's short. It's depressing, but short. That is the perfect stocking stuffer. I think so. Yeah. I bum you right out, but I, I do it in under 150 pages. Do they have Santa in Germany? I was just wondering what sort of holiday traditions you grew up with. You grew up in the Upper Midwest and you don't yeah. know this? Yes, that's correct. Well, we have Santa Claus, okay. but he does not arrive on Christmas. He arrives on, say, Nicholas Day. Okay. He also shows up with a vaguely racist, like hanger on so that's not so cool but then then on christmas eve the christ child themselves delivers the presents okay is the christ child genderless in germany why were you so careful to use the non-binary pronoun oh well it, grammatically right we have three genders in, in oh really yeah and children are are that okay because i'm like everything i've been taught about the christ child is he was unambiguously male but that's a, that's an interesting etymological quirk i feel like we're gonna get a whole lot of medieval mystics very mad at us who are like this is not settled <laughs> when are the medieval mystics not mad at us i know they're an excitable people oh hildegard always <laughs> trying to cancel someone <laughs> Well, speaking of cancellations, we are talking, what did, I'm trying to remember what our incredible upcoming guest Liz Lenz said about, I think she made a joke in our interview that like her upcoming Netflix special is Cancel yeah, Me. Yeah. She has discovered the very dangerous college audience. <sighs> yes. Old men inform us are very prone to canceling. <laughs> I think you and I know just how dangerous that college audience is. And my experience Ooh, of them has yeah. been that they are traumatized and in desperate need of kindness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, we caught up with Liz Lenz to talk about her unputdownable book, Belabored, A Vindication on the Rights of Pregnant Women, which you heard it here first, folks. That title calls back to Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication on the Rights of Women. No. I don't know if you knew, if you caught that reference, Adrian. Okay, I'm just, my mind is blown. Hey, since we're nerds, could you give us, Professor Dobb, a quick gloss of the original Vindication of the Rights of Women? We sent you to destroy me. <laughs> I, I will do no Isn't such thing. Isn't that literally your job? <laughs> it is literally my job, but it's like I'm, I'm off the clock. <laughs> oh, I see. I see how it is. Um, well, I read this book in 2002, so I feel super confident I can do what I just asked you to do. I mean, I just remember it being like one of the first recognized feminist texts, right? Like, isn't that sort of how it's treated yeah. in the canon? Of course, it is not the first feminist text. There have been many others. But in what is now understood to be the Western canon, this was very much in chapter one, right? Yeah, it's. I mean, it was a instrumental text in kind of putting pressure from a gender standpoint on the universalist claims of the French Revolution, which is, you know, all about freedom for all, et cetera, et cetera. And so Liz is playing with Wollstonecraft. Wollstonecraft is playing with the Declaration of the Rights of Man, right? And saying, what kind of a collective are we asserting rights for here? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's definitely 
in the history of feminism, incredibly important. If some of our listeners pick it up now and, and read it without having encountered it before, they might be a little taken aback by mm-hmm. some of it. It definitely has a kind of respectability politics. Like, she's very careful to say women also have to act in such a way as to deserve right. rights. And you're like, ooh, Are you, you know, telling uh, me that a text from the 17th century doesn't pass every sniff test today? 18th, Excuse 18th. me. See, this is what you're here for, doing your job. This is what I'm here for. <laughs> And me and my training, I'm like, I'm thinking of a really beautiful poem that Laureen Niedecker wrote about Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter, Mary Shelley, which is like one of the best dynasties in feminist history. Do you know this poem, actually? Who was Mary Shelley? It's very short. Are you familiar with it? No. Okay, so Laureen Niedecker is an obsession of mine. She was an American poet who lived in the mid-20th century, lived in poverty and obscurity, worked as a janitor for most of her life in northeast Wisconsin. She began a correspondence with the objectivist poet Louis Zukofsky and a relationship with him, and he sort of, in the publishable world sense, discovered her, quote-unquote. So her connection to him is how some of her work got published, and a collected poem of hers was released, I think, around the time I was in grad school a million years ago. Anyway, so... Lorraine Niedecker is this sort of like below deck feminist where she's just always writing about all of these like forgotten women of history. And she has this poem. I'm going to read it. It's very short. It says, who was Mary Shelley? What was her name before she married? She eloped with this Shelley. She rode a donkey until the donkey had to be carried. Mary was Frankenstein's creator, his yellow eye before her husband was to drown. Created the monster nights after Byron Shelley talked the candle down. Who was Mary Shelley? She read Greek, Italian. She bore a child who died, and yet another child who died. So that's the uplifting content you all came here for. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful, though? though. I've loved that poem for such a long time. So anyway, all of this is vital feminist context for all of you to go out and buy Liz Lenz's book, which is way more readable than Mary Wollstonecraft, spoiler alert. Maybe we should say a little bit more about Liz uh, herself, who called us from Iowa, where she lives. So I, I read this book only in preparation for the conversation for the podcast. I previously read Godland, mm-hmm. uh, which I think came out, what, two years ago? I think or it was like last that? year. Yeah, it was 2019. Oh, oh I know, God, I wow. know. Time is a flat circle. Liz, what the hell? Yeah, it's called Godland, a story of faith, loss, and renewal in middle it's America. An- incredible. And I have it here, and it's and it's phenomenal, yeah. Also, you may know Liz as an editor of The, the mm-hmm. Rumpus, and having published pretty much everywhere, and having a wonderful essay, an amazing essay in uh, Roxanne Gay's Not mm-hmm. That Bad. It's hard to be on the internet, or the feminist internet, and not know Liz Lenz, you know? You, people know her on yeah. Twitter, from all the places you just named, certainly. She's published in a ton of women's magazines magazines. I feel like I've followed sort of the arc of the last couple of years of her life through her writing. And she went through a divorce following the 2016 election that was like reflective of, of living in a purple state, which is Iowa. Liz grew up all over, but part of her upbringing was in the town in the suburb next to me in Minnesota, which is hilarious. So we could have known each other in high school, but didn't. And um, yeah, I think my passion for Midwestern women is really coming through this season. (laughs) We spoke to Liz in the middle of the cleanup from one disaster in the middle of another disaster. You'll hear all about that. Um, one thing I should say is that due to the rampant 2020-ness all around us, the audio on this interview is not awesome. What you're hearing is an edited I was going to say, if the audio recording. sounds a lot like a Zoom call, that's because you're listening to a Zoom call, which we try to avoid, but sometimes yeah. the audio fuck-ups just um, trail us around in 2020. I enjoyed the conversation a lot, and I hope people will, will like the interview. I hope the audio gives you a sensation of urgency and authenticity that... We will talk to Liz Lenz by any means possible for as much time as she will give us before her many other commitments intrude, which they did. Uh, She has children just like I do. So before those commitments intrude on us, you and I, Adrian, perhaps we should take it to the bridge. Take it to the bridge. Thank you for joining us yet again. This is our penultimate episode of season two of The Feminist Present. Please join us next week for... The finale. Yeah, it's our season finale. Can you say the guest name? So I don't black out. I want you to do it. I want to see your face. I can't. I can't. You say it. I will narrate your expression when you say it. Um, okay. For the season, for the, <laughs> for, 
for the season finale, we will be sharing a special conversation, a very special conversation that I had with a woman named Cheryl Strayed. And, um... Cheryl Strayed, everyone. Yeah, that's her name, and I don't want to sully it in my mouth. I'm sorry, how did you have this interview if you're, like, I, Because this... I put my... I, I actually think that I might have come off as too composed in the interview because I had huh. to put sort of, like... My my not my you can't be armored with Cheryl Strayed, but I but I really had to dig deep in my composure and, and I think I might have like clenched my asshole a little too hard, but but you all can judge for yourself next week. Yes, it's it, is this audible? <laughs> he, you'll have to tell me. Around minute twenty, you really can tell. Yes. Oh my God! Let these poor people listen to the episode. Um, thank you for joining us in the feminist present. We will see you here next week if I haven't blacked out first. Thank you for joining us. coming at us from Cedar Rapids. Where are you in Iowa? I live in Cedar Rapids. Okay. How's the scene there? You guys have had uh, quite a summer with the, do you say it like Spanish, like derecho? How do you say that word? Um, well, it depends on who you're talking to. Ah. Most islands call it the derecho. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think meteorologists call it a derecho. For people who want to understand what the hell that is, it was basically a Category 4 inland hurricane that came through and hit our town. And, you know, derechos happen. They're just high-speed winds, Um, but they can get really high speed, and that is what happened here. And so we're still cleaning up. Um, I still have gutters on my house um, because, you know, if if you hit a middle of a country place, there's not a lot of access to resources, um, gutters being one of them, and and then we're completely unprepared for it. Um, we lost, I believe, I could get this wrong, but it's something like 80% of our tree canopy in town. Um, you know, people were homeless for days because, well, a lot of mismanagement, but also in a pandemic and nobody could get to the phones and nobody... and. And, and cell phones were down and internet was down and everything. And even if you had a landline, a lot of those were down too. So it was just a big cluster and we'll be cleaning up from it for years, years. And that, and I don't want to brag, but our COVID positivity rate is super great, super high. Whoa. Whoa. Breaking the curve, Iowa. We, we're really, we're inventing the curve is what we're doing. <laughs> Oh, oh God. God. Well, and when you guys had a natural disaster, I mean, I trust that the federal aid arrived promptly and amply. I'm sure you guys were bathed in support. Well, you would think that that would be the case since we are Republican run and our country is also Republican run for now. But no, no um, federal aid wasn't even requested by our governor mm. until six days after the derecho. People, again, homeless on the street living in tents and of course the people homeless on the streets living in tents are the most vulnerable communities and um a a lot of them were a huge immigrant population we have so there's language barriers and cultural barriers and understanding barriers so again so all of this is compounded by we didn't even get a request for federal disaster aid until six days after it hit and then it wasn't even approved until seven days after, and we didn't even get the mm. full amount of aid that we requested. Oh, so, mm. you know, it's just been so telling to see and how that has been playing out politically, too, where, you know, one side is like, we did it. It's clean. And I'm staring out at just piles of, uh, there's still downed power lines in my neighborhood. Wow. The derecho was August 11th. There's still downed 
power lines, like just kind of hanging from trees because they went and hung up like new ones. (laughs) (laughs) You know, these are all questions of scale and like homelessness is extremely serious. But in addition to those serious things, weren't you also dealing with a book release and two children in a hotel room at the time of this? I remember from social media. Right. I I was lucky to not be homeless. Well, I I had to leave my home because I had no power and no internet for several days. I had no power. So you were lucky to be only mildly homeless. Yes, mildly homeless. Um, and, And but I still had to work and actually my workload doubled because when you work at a small newspaper, like that's what happens when disaster hits, you work more. And I was also doing some stringing for the post who wanted to write about this, but didn't want to send somebody into a COVID zone. <laughs> so it was frantic and hectic. And it was just like the storm hit. My book was supposed to launch the next day. I throw my kids in the car. I mean, and our streets were blocked. I couldn't, we couldn't even leave for several hours and there are no stoplights. So once it seemed moderately safe to leave the home, we, I throw them in the car and our little puppy, which we just gotten a couple of weeks before. So drive up an hour up uh, north to a town called Cedar Falls, which I thought would be would be less affected. Um, and they actually got no, very little damage, but because there was such widespread power outage and cell, cell service outage, like mo- a lot of places weren't accepting credit cards. So oh, um, it would just made it hard to find food. Um, And fortunately the hotel would take us, but so I get there, you know, get things set up. I'm able to do my book launch in dirty clothes in a hotel room. The publisher sent us hamburgers because I was like, I can't, I don't, I have two kids and a dog in a hotel room. I can't just drive around looking for a place that accepts a credit card and I have work to do. And I was actually like, maybe what if the Wi-Fi goes out, you guys like what's, and they're like, okay. And so they sent me some booze and some hamburgers but you know it was just it was just weeks of going back and forth between my my literal broken home uh and then hotels and then trying to report and trying to help my neighbors and delivering food and washing my underwear in a tub on my neighbor's lawn while my kids are playing and I'm doing an interview with someone oh my god you know for a story (laughs) Of a woman, a senior who was locked inside her senior center because they had, I mean, there's no power. She's not very mobile and the elevators weren't working. And she was telling me how um, the seniors were getting together and the one, the one or two who were mobile were like grilling the food. Bless their hearts. Barbecuing it outside. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And like just feeding themselves until food and help and power could arrive. So, so I'm talking to her. I'm like, yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I'm just going my underwear. It's fine. My kids are screaming in the background and you know, oh, that's what 2020 just does to you. Just keeps on giving. Yeah. I guess I'm imagining that conversation from the point of view of the elder woman that you were talking to. And I can't imagine that like an elder woman in the Midwest wouldn't be sympathetic to someone washing her hands and or washing her underwear and her children and doing an interview at the same time I didn't even face her I mean we're talking to I mean we're talking to people who remember the great depression actually this woman that's that's unfair to say to her she's she was only like 70 I believe 77 so she doesn't personally but you know there's like there's this like hard-coded survivalist mentality and I know a lot of places have it too in the midwest we cope by hoarding things. Did you see the stat of how much chest freezers have gone up in sales during the pandemics? 2020 is the year of the freezer, according to thekitchen.com. Everybody in the Midwest already had a chest freezer, but our chest freezers were all spoiled since derecho. But yeah, I mean, so I'm just, I'm talking to a woman who, who remembers what it was like to live on a farm without power. I remember in researching for my book, going to a little church um, down on the Iowa Nebraska border and being in this tiny little service. And I think the median age of everybody, if you don't count me, uh, median age was about like 60 something. And, um, you know, the, the pastor asks who had power on their farm when they were younger. Mm-hmm. 
and like two people raised their hands. Wow. She's like, yeah, you remember what it was like to live without power. And this isn't that long ago. Oh no. But that's just some of the hard encoded realities that people have and people face. And, you know, working in an ag-based economy, um, it, it's famously unstable. And so, and, and even if you don't, you know, that that culture seeps into you in a way where what becomes culturally acceptable is not looking at people and saying, yeah, this fucking sucks. Oh, wait, can I swear? Oh, yeah. Totally. We encourage it. The Iowa GOP recently took out an attack ad on me. Uh, well, attack ad on Teresa Greenfield by associating her with me, saying that I was amateurish and crass. And I was like, actually, I'm professional and crass. Please get it right. But, you know, I can never keep it straight. It's like, it's like, okay, NPR, no swearing. But anyway, so we got off track. But the whole point being, you know, the culture here is not to look at each other and say, this fucking sucks. Somebody helps help us. The culture here is to say, and it's kind of become a running joke. It's like, well you know um things could be worse we only got four tree branches in through our roof uh but it's fine because we were able to patch it up and the rainwater that came in only did minor structural damage so we're okay we're just waiting to get those branches out of our roof it's been like three months now but we're fine because our neighbor totally lost their house so we're just trying to find a way to help them it's like what the hell are you saying (laughs) (laughs) but i i was saying this to somebody the other day i was like iowans just need the ability to complain because that's also why we didn't get help right away because nobody was and and i don't say nobody there were some people me included Mm -hmm. and a local tv news anchor um beth maliki who's very beloved in our community um and then uh uh, congresswoman abby finkenauer like uh, the three of us were like somebody help us (laughs) and everybody else is like i think we can bootstrap it and they're like we can't bootstrap this they're like kathy brought me some hot dish we're good till thursday (laughs) for a while i put my my cell phone number in my byline for the newspaper because i knew like my work phone was a zoom phone and it's like i can't get those calls don't come to my phone it was like our system was kind of wonky and so a woman called me and she ended up being living very close to me and she was like oh you know i just um just want to call see where i can help out she sounds older can she really like come lift a tree or wield a chainsaw and and so you're like i've got this pile of underwear in my bathtub how are your washing wash skills my clothes, <laughs> actually a friend of mine did come and just like take a bunch of my laundry wash it and deliver it right that's back love. to me and, and that's love. that is love um when i finally started talking to her it turned out she was stuck in her home hadn't had a hot meal in five days couldn't i mean she couldn't get her car out of the garage because the power was out and she couldn't lift the garage door open well she couldn't get in to detach it it was just like this whole thing and and she's diabetic and so i was like ma'am how can we help you? You know, like she she had called to ask to help. What she needed was some help. So, you know, I was just like, okay, what's your address? And then I went over to the store and bought her some stuff and, and delivered her some meals for a while. I should check in with her. Let's call Let's dial her in. Call her Eleanor. (laughs) We have Eleanor from Cedar Rapids on the line. Well, okay. So you are reminding me of my passion for elder Midwestern women. And I'm going to tell you a story and try to use it as a bridge to talk about your amazing book, Belabored, A Vindication of the Rights of Pregnant Women. So one of my very first jobs was working in the dining room of a senior home. And I think it was like a combination nursing home and assisted living home, but they had like a dining room and and the residents had to come down to eat a certain number of meals per month or something. Partially, I think, for the home's revenue stream and partially to get them out of their rooms once in a while. And uh, I was like 16, 17 when I had this job. And uh, with the men who were few in numbers, it was like serial sexual harassment and like them like pinching my 16 year old ass as I walked by. Mm -hmm. And with the women, it was like I couldn't do a thing for them no matter how hard I tried because I would get to like pick up their dishes and like 
their entire mise en place would be like completely stacked. Like the salad plate would be on top of the dinner plate. The knife would be on top of the, of the salad plate. Like they would have stacked their empty glass. Like they would have prepared the entire plate of dishes to just hand it to me. So I would have to do as little as possible. And this to me speaks really closely to the mythology of female selflessness that like pervades all of the Midwest and very much pervades the world of your book, Belabored, right? Like we have this mythology of the selfless, endlessly self-sacrificing mother. And as you do, I had a conservative Christian upbringing. And I thought that the way you weaved that in with a lot of like sort of theological analysis and research was really fascinating, particularly in the way that you found conceptions of Mary were very different throughout different denominations of the church. But I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about where Belabored came from, in your own words. So I, I do need to say I also worked at an assisted living center. When no I was way. In, in, no in way. In South Dakota. Yeah, that was my very first job. Yeah. Wow. Yes. And I had a very similar experience. Mm-hmm. So where did Belabored come from? Well, I mean, very practically, right after after I had my second child, um, so around 2014, of course, I think, you know, all of our stories come from the, our lived experiences, our bodies, and you can pretend they don't, but only white heterosexual cisgendered men get to pretend that they just, you know, mm-hmm. somehow ideas fall from the tree and hit them in the head. But for the rest of us, we know that, you know, the stories we tell are truly the stories of our body. And at the time I was, um, I started writing, um, essays for Jezebel and I had actually pitched the series. The pitch was terrible. Um, I had been writing for Gia Tolentino at the hairpin. And when she moved over to Jezebel, she was like, well, pitch me some stuff. So I sent her like this email of all like formal pitches. And then at the very end, I was like, also, I'm like really weirdly obsessed with weird stories about mothers and bodies. And did you know babies can turn to stone and in your body? And, and I was like, and there's all sorts of weird shit like that, like, women pulling rabbits out of their vaginas. It's crazy. And so she was like, all these other pitches are terrible. But she didn't actually say that. But she was just kind of like, okay, write the weird shit. I'm so not surprised that Gio went for the weird shit at the end. (laughs) Checks out, checks out. Yeah, checks out. Yeah. And she just gave me free reign. She goes, go for it. Just write the weird shit. And so I started writing the weird shit. And then I was also trying to sell a book at the time. It was about... Uh, conceptions of womanhood and faith and politics we've done with growing up evangelical and I was trying to sell that in uh, early 2016 and editors kept saying like I don't think anybody really cares about religion Uh ominous music in the (laughs) narrator they cared (laughs) (laughs) so bad take y'all but one editor Remy Colley who is the editor of Belabored had really liked couldn't get her team at Norton to buy it but she was like I love your essays at Jezebel she's like there's a book here and so we worked together very closely to put together a proposal she sold it to her team um and then later when she left for bold type books she brought me along with her which doesn't always happen in the book world no it doesn't she very desperately wanted to bring it over and it was the right call because she's I had kind of sold two books side by side which I this sounds like such a bitch ass thing to say but it's like I don't recommend it it's like when people are like <laughs> what a bitch oh, I'm so thin and hot I don't recommend being thin and hot and you're like I hate gaining all my weight in my boobs so that's what it sounds like when I say I don't recommend it when people mm-hmm. are like oh really you know mm-hmm. okay so anyway we'll move on from that but why don't you recommend it well Writing a book is really hard, you guys. I'm not what? sure if you understand. We're aware. Yeah, we're aware. <laughs> Adrian's shocked. You heard it here first. Yeah, I mean, like. <laughs> well, and I was also doing it as a mother of two children, primary caretaker of yeah. two children. And my life was falling apart my personal life was falling apart um, because all this happened around 2016 and I was in a a mixed political marriage and that's really hard to sustain 
I think if you're living an honest life, if you are not, then it becomes a little easier. So all all that was happening. So when I finally sat down, when I finally turned in God landed, I had been researching them both side by side. But when I finally sat down to write Billy Bird, I was a different person than when I had sold the book. And I was like, I I remember being like, well, I'm not going to write this. I can't write this. It's too hard. If I write this, I have to talk about sexual assault. If I write this, I have to talk about what my parents said and they're not going to like it. You know, I have to talk about some really hard things that felt too vulnerable. And, um, (laughs) I don't know if you know the writer Matthew Celestes. He's great, but he lives in town and he's a friend of mine and he had just kind of moved here and his wife was dying while my marriage was falling apart. So we brought each other Popeyes and let our kids play together. I remember telling him like, I was like, I think I'm just going to buy my way out of the book contract. I didn't get a lot of money for it. And he's like, just fucking write your book. Which <laughs> uh, <laughs> And so I called Remy and we worked out a new organizational structure. So that's a very long answer for where that book came from. But um, I truly believe I was actually rereading a book that I had read for the research of the book. It's called Homely and Maternity by Natalie Fixmer Oritz. I was looking at the notes I had written and, um, and I had written a little note I wrote to my children I can't write my story of my body without also writing part of your story. Mm. And I'm so sorry for that. <laughs> I really want my kids to have autonomy. But yeah, I I, I saw that and I was like, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> so that's the story of the book. I swear I'm going to let Adrian get a word in edgewise sometime, maybe. Um <laughs> I'll just I'll just lurk. He he's a lurker. That's actually a perfect segue to one of the things that I most wanted to talk to you about is like I am a big nerd for like the ethics of nonfiction as a discipline and one intersection of that subdiscipline that particularly fascinates me is the responsibility of mothers in telling stories that touch their children, right? And believe me when I say I am not here to police you and be like, did you think about your kids? And did you think about how much this is going to hurt them? Because it is so clear from the way that you constructed the story, how deeply you thought about that. By which I mean, I thought you did a really skillful, excellent job of telling your story as a mother in a way that at least to my perception did not encroach on their autonomy as children, you know, and I get really uncomfortable when I read writers who write comic essays about like their child's potty training process or stuff like that you know like because because I'm like look I get it there's so much drama in potty training I'm doing it right now like I could crack 10 lines all day about like all the poop on the floor in my house but how do I do that in a way that doesn't humiliate my child 15 years from now you know and like I do have that responsibility to my children so anyway I would love to hear again in your own words a little bit about how you thought about how to draw that boundary for yourself and for your kids. Something that's also in the book is that, um, you know, I live in the middle of the country. And so for many years, I was having a hard time establishing my career as a writer. And so I just got frustrated, like so many people started a blog. And that also coincided with, um, with my motherhood journey. So I was becoming a mother while writing. So I became a mom blog, which, you know, I had been reading as I think we all do and did, you know, I had been reading Deuce and Maggie Neeson and all those, all those along with Gawker, you know, along with everything in the wild, wild early aughts. So, you know, there was a time when their bodies were part of my body. You know what I mean? Like, yes, there, there was no separation. And, and also when, like, even when they're little, like there's no, they, you are them, they are you. Like the, the, you literally have each other's cells in, in each other's bodies. But like, I would read stories that other people were writing and find them interesting and enjoyable, but also realize, you know, and make jokes about baby poop. But I also realized, okay, at some point, at some point, it's going to have to be different because it's one thing to tell a baby story, even maybe a toddler story. And another thing to tell like a child yeah. story. And also too, like I try to be as honest a writer as possible. And I was doing this again and my marriage was getting really bad. And I was like, Oh, I can't, you know, I don't know what to make of this. 
and yeah so I was like well I can't write some of those things and I remember like trying to take a picture of my daughter when she was about three or four probably for the blog and she was like I don't want to do it and I was like okay this is when it ends it ends now I mean you could maybe go through some of my early writing and argue that I might have crossed a line in some places and I probably wouldn't fight you on it but it was a learning experience I think as all parenting is it's like where's the push and pull and the moment she said she didn't want to pose for that picture I was like we're done that's a hard boundary it is a hard boundary there's also another thing that has happened to my life recently in the past few years as my writing gets more popular I get attacked more online Mm. and as a mother sometimes those attacks also come with attacks on my children you know people say really horrible gross things um and and so I'm like fiercely protective of them and I don't want like on a basic level I just don't want people like finding their names and finding out where they go to school finding out all these things about them and but there's also like the autonomy question too because I think I talk about this in the book like who owns your story you know who owns the narrative of your story when I went to Idaho to talk to Tara Westover's family that's what that became about and I think about that so often with my kids like okay your life is yours my life is mine the dignity of my life is not dependent upon what you do with yours you know and and the value of my life is not dependent on the whether I had a child or not obviously I'd be devastated if anything happened to them which is not what we're talking about but like who I am is not predicated upon them existing Right. And I think that's better for everybody. It is something I'm always thinking about. I think about it. It's why I delete my tweets. It's why I have one private Instagram and one public Instagram. It's why I asked my parents two years ago to stop sharing pictures of my kids on their Facebook. Um, after I found out that the alt-right discovered my parents' names. And, you know, just like, it was just like, you know, these, I can't keep them away from this forever. Um, my daughter recently Googled me. Oh, <laughs> say more, please. Well, I was so scared because I've been waiting for this day um, ever too. since, yeah. well, not ever since she was born, um, because I was like, I was just like a chuckle fuck when she was born, you know, and then like later, <laughs> later as like, you know, I, I still am a chuckle fuck, but people take me more seriously now, which is really everybody else's fault. It's not my fault, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, like, so probably since like 2017, I've been worried about this, but she Googled me the other day and, uh, and came downstairs and was like, mom I giggle you she's nine and I was like okay and I was like okay sit down what do you want to ask what do you want to know uh and she said that she had read something I'd written about her and fairies and didn't use her name and and I was like oh yeah that might be one of the things that might have crossed the line and she just like started crying and she hugged me and she was like it's so beautiful I love you so much because we have this whole like fairy thing well she gave up fairies during pandemic and it was a huge loss for me because I've been I've been the fairy Ella like she has a little fairy who writes her notes and that fairy's Ella and Ella's existed for about five years and uh she gave up Ella in pandemic and it was heartbreaking to me because the fairy Ella sends my daughter uh, these little notes and the notes come in really hard times you know she's we've had to weather a divorce together we've had to weather a pandemic together we've had right. to weather a lot of stuff together and so the um the notes have been I don't know like my way of telling her that I love her so much and that she's a beautiful human full of magic and wonder and then when she gave it up I was devastated because I was like I don't know how to parent without magic <laughs> Right, right, right. And so that's, I guess that's what she had found and that's what she had read. And she just was like, mommy, I love you so much. And thank you for making magic. And I was. Oh, if you need to restock your fairies, um, the Clayman Institute for Gender Research has a whole host of them in reserve for you. (laughs) Adrian is the president. Hell yeah. I'm the the head fairy. He's the head fairy. I love it. 
That's like a really beautiful way to communicate with your children. I really like that technique of weathering storms with your kids. Um, Adrian, I'll stop talking for a second so you can talk a little. (laughs) Well, um, so one thing I was I was wondering just from reading your book, um, when when you did decide that this was going to be your topic, the book kind of moves sequentially. Did you is that sort of how it came about? Or is that an organization you hit on later? Yeah, the organization of the book came so when it was first proposed it didn't have that first trimester second trimester third and fourth trimester organization which moves you through the phases of pregnancy and uh it was initially just it was initially just topics but i was having a hard time organizing it i i think a lot about structure what i write i and i see it in shapes um, you know, so like, is it, is it like a triangle? Does it rise to a point and then go back down or does it go up and down and up and down or right. how do we shape it? And so Godland was very traditional trajectory, go up to a point, follow a journey and then a little conclusion and we're done. Um, the labored was harder. And that was part of the reason I was having such a hard time writing it was because I couldn't conceive of a structure for it because the, the ideas that I had kind of sold it on weren't really holding weight. Mm. And then experiencing motherhood as like a single mother and, and some of the research that I had done, I was like, okay, I can't, some of these things I can't say anymore, or they're too much, or the way that we've organized them, like, that should be two chapters. This should be four, you know, one chapter should actually be three chapters. Anyway, it was weird. And so that's what my editor helped me do. She was like, okay, let's find the shape. And then she was like, let's just do it sequentially. And then you can drop your essays into buckets where you see. Oh, I see. And that, that once I had that structure, then it opened up, but I, I, I didn't write them in that order, I wrote them. I mean, some of them are based on essays I had written years ago. So I I was writing them here and there and willy-nilly and then going back and saying, okay, does this fit here or does it fit here? Where should this go? Um, and how does it fit within the phases of the pregnant body organizational structure? So, oh, yeah. I, I, it's really fascinating to me to, I think a lot about structure, but I know that's probably really boring to some people. <laughs> no, I love structure too. We're both structure nerds. And I think a lot of our listeners from anecdotal feedback. Oh, good. I, I'm just always fascinated with it. And it's, if you're writing about pregnancy structure and organicism becomes so tricky, right? Because in some way, what you're trying to disrupt here is precisely being drafted into narratives that are scripted for you the moment you become pregnant. Um, and in some way, an organic structure can do that too it can sort of like you know you're like well now I'm I'm along for the for the journey here so I was wondering I think it it makes a lot of sense to both have that kind of structure but I could also imagine it specifically for something that is trying to point out how how societally determined this experience really is you know has to be very careful and about about relying on 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 organicism to some extent Mm. that's so smart I never thought about it that way I think the way I was thinking about it too was that it really um structuring it in that way pushed against traditional structure um that it made the structure the body um you know the story is the body, the structure is the body. You know, when we think about birth, you know, there's, it's very much the traditional, you wait, you have the baby and then it's over. But that's, that's not how the book goes. The book is organized into the phases, but there is no like big birth story. Like then she, you know, then she screamed and pushed and her hair was still curled. And then the baby came out. Congratulations. It was a miracle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. so I did kind of think of the book as like being, against while being tightly structured also being against structure yeah yeah i thought i picked up on that that's so cool yeah so you're right there is a threat of saying like oh well it's, since it's all about the body then you you know you're limited by the body it's sort of essentialist side of it yeah yeah as i was 
thinking about the book. That's what I kind of thought. And when when, when the that structure was proposed to me by the editor, I can't even pretend I came up with it. You know, she's such a genius. And I think, you know, all all writers know that we would be nowhere without our editors. Well, I certainly wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I didn't mean to agree. Like, yes, you, Liz, would be nowhere without an editor. Yes. I just meant like, yes, Liz, all writers are nowhere without know. editors. Liz, you specifically would be a mess. <laughs> Hot mess. The worst, even worse, <laughs> even worse. <laughs> I, I'm curious about this question, both as it reflects upon belabored specifically and just about your work as a whole, but like, who are the feminist nonfiction writers who excite or influence you the most? Oh, wow. The feminist nonfiction writers. It's so funny because you say feminist. I just think of all the nonfiction writers I read, and I think most of them would identify as um, yes yeah as feminist so I've never I've never really been like well now I gotta find a feminist it's just hard (laughs) to find a qualified unfeminist these days so the the writers I read who excite me are I mean obviously I'm excited by Taffy Ackner um I think the way she does transitions is brilliant um, obviously, Gia Tolentino has had a huge influence on me and my work, and uh, and I I love like the way she can do these really in depth thoughts, like these mind blowing in depth thoughts, but like couched inside like one sentence or a joke. Yeah, I studied that a lot. You know, like I was like, oh, she just said like something very like super intelligent that blew my mind, but it happened in one sentence. I. T- Taught trick mirror yesterday and I have been stuck for 24 hours on a very specific passage of always be optimizing where she describes the woman queefing for like an entire yoga class yeah <laughs> so I was just like who else who else would describe that that's so quintessential no that bit that bit goes on for a while doesn't it, it? goes on for a while it's not like one queef it's a whole like class long queef series yeah I think the joy of being of learning writing on the internet which is how I learned writing I learned I became a writer on the internet that's the only way I learned that you learn the joy of having fun Mm-hmm. in your stories and mm-hmm. I so often I get into this space with editors good editors bad editors we're like we're gonna cut this line out I'm like no that's funny please keep it in they're yeah. like well what what purpose is it I'm like I told you the purpose it's funny and now I can do that when they read Liz they're not coming here it's because part they of want your something brand yeah. Yeah. yeah right like so if you are hiring me this is what you're going to get. And I can understand maybe cutting those four stupid jokes, but you got to keep this one. At, you really just want to have fun with Come you. Come for the brilliant analysis. Stay for the crotch slime, man. I love the crotch slime. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Again, who else would say it? But Liz, she yeah. said it. You who know? else would say crotch slime? Who else would ball a vagina ground hamburger? <laughs> who else except for all of the women who have used that metaphor to me privately? Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Like that is actually one of the things that I thought was a real success of Belabored was there was so much that you were making public that was recognizable to me from private conversations. And I think that breaching that boundary is super radical and important. Well, isn't that something that everybody says after you have a child? Why did nobody tell me? And one of my friends is mom. She said to me, I think I just kind of been like, well, I don't know. She goes, listen, we've been telling you for years, but you're not listening. That's when I was writing this book that was always going through my head was like, no, women have been saying this shit for years. I think I actually write in there. Women have been saying this shit for years and you're not listening. Yes. Yes. I think that's actually a line. I forget. But yes, it no, it is. Um, but the but yeah, I was like, no, it this is not when I come to this book, you know, what am I adding? You know, I'm adding that voice, that voice Mm -hmm. that says, you know, like we have been saying this shit for years. Years. When will it centuries? Yeah. Generations, centuries. And it's not in some ways it is a secret because we don't find spaces for it in our culture to normalize it, mm-hmm. you know? And so like we still, you know, it's like still have to have the parenting section on the New York Times. Like we can't, which I, I said that sarcastically. I'm, they do wonderful work, but you know, Jessica like we Gross still have to like one of my out. lifelines in the pandemic, but I agree with you that making that its own genre is a very specific choice. Yeah. Jessica Gross is so talented. Her. 
Yes. No. And she's so talented and her work is so good. And I think one of her skills is just always being able to get right at that core issue. Mm. Um, and, and she just sold a book too, which I'm really excited about. Oh, that's awesome. Um, Yes, yes, yes. But you know, we still segment it out, right? It's still like women's media. It's still a special interest. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. When it's really just the fundamental interest of our actual economy, and that if we didn't have children, our literally would collapse. But it's fine. Call it a little lady thing, whatever. We're super chill. Kathy's bringing us a hot dish. We're good till Thursday. Yeah. (laughs) 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 What were you going to say, Adrian? Well, I mean, I, I think that that's something we could sort of drill down on a little bit, right? Like the fact that on the one hand, the premise of the book obviously is that our way of talking about about motherhood, pregnancy, et cetera, is, is under-discussed and kind of overly segmented. And at the same time, of course, as you also point out, it is this, it's such a huge industry to write about it and to commodify it. And and maybe for our our, our listener, you could sort of, you know, get at that paradox of, of, of a society that on the one hand seems obsessed um, with these things and then unable to deal with the actual bodies involved and the actual gnarly issues involved in the moment? Oh, that's such a smart question. I, um, and I think the thing that really gets at that intersection is, a, oh, was, this, was that just last year? I wrote an article for Topic, may it rest in peace, about, about mom blogging and mom influencing and this, this very same intersection that you yeah. are talking about. You're right. It is highly commercial to be a mom. Right. Right. Like brands want it, but it's, it's that same back and forth, but it's, it's still like push. It's a huge industry, but it's still on the side. It's, you know, it's still not mainstream. And I think one of my frustrations as we talked earlier is that I had become kind of this de facto mom blogger and it was this wonderful, incredible community that got me my start as a writer, but it was, it's also a deeply unsettling place to live, Ah, to commodify your life and your body as a brand. And yet what other choice do people have when you create a system and you create a society that is fundamentally reliant on the free labor the free use of a uterus and and then the hands attached to it to then raise the child because we don't have universal pre-k um across america we don't have paid parental leave we don't have affordable child care so you're essentially relying you built an entire economy based upon the reliance of unpaid labor on women's bodies and then you as we're all realizing in pandemic without access to help you we can't do it and so women are dropping out of the labor force and so instead of bailing out parents we're bailing out banks and airlines when and continually and pushing women out of the workforce because we cannot have an economy if we don't have childcare, we don't have a tax base. Anyway, you get it. But then when these very same and this has been the true for for centuries, this is not a new problem in 2020. But when a woman then says, okay, fine, I can't get a job. Uh, so I, I can't do the work I want um, and have children, or it's really hard. So I'm going to drop out, but then I'm going to profit right? Then I'm going to take pictures of my kids and get sponsored by Huggies. And and then we have a real problem with that, don't we? We don't have a problem. Well, I have a problem, but a a society writ large does not have a problem, which I know is a terrible thing to say. Let's just do it because we can't, we can't stay in these these problematic sentences for too long but like you know we don't have a problem with like some dudes inventing apps to like do laundry but we do have a problem with like a mom propping herself against a brick wall in brooklyn and you know getting sponsors by kids or whatever to do that like we have a problem with letting women access capital yeah (laughs) and so when they say fine the system is broken i'm gonna do this it's like okay well you can do it but you have to do it in a certain way it's like even when a woman's very successful we're like well she's fake and then she's like okay let me get real and we're like not too real bleed but bleed just a little bit show us your stretch marks but not too many 
right don't be too thin but don't be too fat and it just becomes that same thing that same tension and you're right like it can be to commodify your children is an inherently horrible thing um i think uh but also but also we've created a society where women don't have many choices that's why mlms are a mm-hmm. thing they wouldn't be a thing oh my god if, if we just you could wipe out a shit ton of scams if you just gave like if you just had like affordable child care and paid yeah, parental yeah. leave and or then the whole mlm income it, or yeah. yeah oh universal health care that whole system would just Crazy. collapse and then people could just make money the normal way. A single level marketing scam, <laughs> at least. Yeah, exactly. Scam people the normal yeah, way. Yeah, let's, let's at least do that. <laughs> Liz, you're reminding me of one of my favorite cultural fixations, which is the pioneer woman. What's her name? D. Reed Drummond. Reed Drummond. Okay, fill me in. Okay, so the pioneer woman, she's like a food... She started out as a food blogger on the blog, the pioneer woman. She... So she is a master of artifice. There was an incredible New Yorker profile a couple of years ago. And Liz, what, what just made me think of it from what you were saying was the pioneer woman is someone who's built an empire, right? She has like a whole line of merchandise. She has a show on the food network. She has this really successful blog. Like she is monetized and created revenue streams and like proto mom blogger. Totally total like bootstrap model. Like there was something in that New Yorker profile that mentioned that she had never been in her house alone for the first eight years of being a mother. And so what she did was figure out a way to leverage all of that, right? Like she got a nice camera and started publishing her recipes with really pretty photos and she like leveraged it. But what I find fascinating about her, and then I swear I'll shut up, is that she has created this artificial image of herself as a pioneer woman, like as a ranch wife, because her husband is from this like ranching dynasty in Wyoming or Montana or something. Um, I forget, somewhere in the Great Plains. But she is actually a girl from LA who went to USC and just married this guy. They met in college. So she she has built this whole empire on the artifice of being like just a down-home mom. But in actuality, she's like someone with like a very savvy business education and rant. Here's the thing. Okay, here's the thing. She built a media empire. Um, and, and I remember reading that New Yorker article and, and, you know, no shade on the New Yorker. I don't think they punched her harder than they punch anybody else. But like, it was interesting to me to think like, well, we're hitting her artifice, right? In another situation where we celebrate some of the artifice, of course, artifice. yes, totally. JD fucking Vance is a scammer. Oh, I thought you were going to say Salinger, but Salinger or Vance go either way. We could yeah. go there too. I mean, 2020 has been rough, but that topped things off. That whole book. And it's like, again, and it's like, what do we celebrate and what do we denigrate and who gets to be totally. fake and who doesn't like, you know, the Kardashians yeah. are kind of a fake media brand. Yeah. Uh, we buy into it. Like why do we shit more on mom bloggers? than we do on like any man out there who has built a media empire right well i think now it's substack it's now like men with really popular substacks who are making like 90k a month on their newsletters they are model yeah women are too though women are too at least Anne helen peterson is um quite a few others i think caitlin greenidge is doing one um so i'm like i'm like one of the proto sub stackers and uh i make a a, a solid amount of money on I'm delighted uh, to hear that. that's awesome to hear yes but again it's that weird thing where it's like okay once again i'm commodifying myself yeah, in order to yeah. live you know and it's like you know, okay, I have to be a brand, but I'm not a brand. I'm a person. I remember somebody saying something to me recently about, I tweeted something and I don't like talking about my tweets. That's why they delete. Um, but they, it is like, oh, well, I get why you have to say that you have a brand to maintain. I was like, I'm just a person. (laughs) But, but yeah, but like success also involves, success in a capitalistic society involves a commodity I can't say that word of self to a certain extent. So then where does that leave us to get back to Adrian's question that leaves us exactly with his question, right? Like the tension, we can't resolve it until we, um, until we burn down capitalism. 
I think you just kind of light it on fire. I mean, that's 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 the thing, right? That like that in some way it's it's less shocking that there's this paradox that that one is forced to monetize this labor that is supposed to be unmonetizable or whatever. It's more shocking that we expect it to be like that in the first place, right? What other activity do we engage in that like that that of, of this which this is true, right? So like there is something <clears throat> this is like capitalism sort of pretending that it stops sort of that it can tell itself to stop at any moment and it's like no capitalism you're 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 you know five shots of whiskey in you're gonna keep going you're not gonna you're not gonna like voluntarily stop applying to this thing just because we all feel warm and fuzzy about it because like little hands and feet are cute you know capitalism gonna have capitalism and it's gonna do it um until someone says stop Yeah. Yeah. And there's no aspect. I mean, we can pretend, but there's no aspect of our life that is free of commoditization. Like even the things I think about the things that I do and the things that I love to do that have no commercial value. Um, before pandemic, I was just doing stand up for fun. Um, oh my god, Rapids, which is a whole scene, but like, I have some connections at Cornell college. If you need a college audience, if you need some like kids on mushrooms to laugh at you. <laughs> oh, they do laugh and they laugh. I bet they do, yeah. <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld told me that all college kids want to do is cancel you. So be careful with these college audiences. <laughs> cancel me, baby. That's the title of my Netflix special. Boom. <laughs> yeah, I do this with no, no, I don't. You know, it's like it's just a thing I do for fun. I, I do kind of think it helps me creatively a little bit. But, uh, but it's like, but, but there's also like, that's it, isn't it? Like you do this kind of thing. And then you're also like, well, it probably also helps me do this, this, and this, which is like the point where it's just like, you can never just do a thing. Even if you're yeah. just like, I'm going to knit and I'm not gonna, and it's gonna, you know, you're still like buying knitting things. You're still yeah. getting into the knitting world and like, and then buying all the, you know, it's like, it's like, there's never yeah. a thing that's not tainted the path between starting an insta about your knitting suddenly have having an only fan for your knitting products or like an etsy <laughs> is gonna be it's i mean it's and, and i feel like during the pandemic it's all like like literally we're like hey do you want to monetize and you're like do i crafting only fans what an idea <laughs> i just want somebody knitting their yeah jacket. yeah yeah <laughs> super soothing <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. But also it's like, well, we're also income insecure anyway. So yeah. like at some point it just got to be like, all right, baby, I'm going to sell out. Let's knit on camera. That's got to be a thing, right? <laughs> Naked.com. <laughs> we're registering the URL as we speak. Right. Huggies is going to sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it really hits a bunch of quadrants, a bunch of quadrants. <laughs> Wait, I was going to ask you, that would be like the perfect place to end, but I have no grace as a person. Um, Liz, have you ever seen the early Nora Ephron film, This Is My Life, about a single mother trying to become a stand-up? No, but I need to because I don't know if you know this, but I've been obsessively reading and rereading Heartbreak these days. Oh, Heartbreak. I do know this because you've been tweeting about it and it's such a fucking good book and a good movie. It's so good. I haven't seen the movie. Oh, why haven't I seen the movie? What is wrong with it? I was homeschooled. That's what's wrong with me. So it literally right. never occurs to me to watch a movie. It's a fantastic movie that also features, I believe, Kevin Spacey's first on-screen appearance because I know all sorts of weird trivia like that. But I think This Is My Life was like 1992, and I believe it was directed by Nora and written by her sister Delia. And it's a, it stars Julie Klausner as a single mom who has this sort of like nascent stand-up career. And her daughters it. are Samantha Morton and Christina Ricci. It is a classic. What? Like it is a it is a sleeper classic. Okay, Laura. Okay, we. Okay, so you know I you're not supposed up. to like. I will follow up if you. Okay. Need me to. Okay, so you know we're not supposed to like writers are not supposed to talk about your like next thing until it's like a thing. But I will say in my next thing, I am going to have a whole chapter on like being like a single mother and a kind of conservative area doing stand-up and humor and marriage and uh and that intersection of like dumb marriage jokes and like Mm -hmm. sexism and all that kind of stuff I found uh, you can get into how I found it but through a friend uh let's just say it that way I found all these like old records that were like stand-up sets 
from like the 1920s and they're all just like my wife's so terrible let me tell you why and they're incredible so this is going to help yeah no i'm really stoked for you to watch this movie it's so good i'm even afraid to ask this but like if in a record recording of a stand-up routine someone's like this may not be politically correct but i mean like whatever follows must be truly the most terrifying shit imaginable right in the 20s jesus in the 20s well they didn't really say politically correct they were just like my wife's so fat here's why (laughs) (laughs) it was a simpler time yes yes in many ways I love the dumb ones because they're easier to rape. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> no, I've been rewatching Boardwalk Empire, which is based in the 20s. I don't know. I am such a glutton for punishment. I don't know why I rewatch these shows, but like they feature a lot of songs and jokes like that. Like my girl's so fat or like my girl's so dumb. And there really is like a whole song that I think mm. is like a Cole Porter song. That's like, I love the dumb ones because they don't fight. Um, so I was sort of joking, but like, oh. unf- as with all things in America, yeah, it, all, it stops being funny very quickly. Yeah. So that was a bummer. Anyway, we oh, were God. laughing about Nora Ephron and that was now we're fun. sad. <laughs> now we're sad. Thank you. So I feel like we've, we've hit on something incredibly fun here, which would be to watch a movie together and talk about it. And so we should probably monetize that, right? Yeah, let's OnlyFans. Can we do it? Can we? That would be a really good special podcast feature. Right? Like have Liz on, right? watch This Is My Life, and then like publish our commentary track or something. Yeah, yeah. I think we're making a plan here. This is premium. This is premium. Okay, premium this content. Is good shit. Shit. This, is the, this is the good Glenn Livett. This is the good shit. Yeah. I mean, I watch movies without pants on anyway, so like we can just build that I, in. I'll admit... I'll keep my pants on, but I'll knit. Knit naked. Well, now we have a plan. I'll bring the hot dish. Uh, and, Kathy's uh, bringing the hot dish. Kathy's Kathy. bringing the hot dish. I'm so <laughs> Whenever that bitch gets here. <laughs> you call that bitch Kathy and get her over here. Tell her I want the good funeral hot dish with ground beef and cheese. They all have ground uh... beef and cheese. Okay, well, Liz, we've already planned your return. You have to come back and be a sequel guest next year, and we will talk about Nora Ephron and Parenthood from More Angles. Fantastic. Okay, I'm excited. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It is produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas and Isabella Tilly. All our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman that none of us have seen recently, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. And we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues there, Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, and Sarah Mersney. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. We'd appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars on iTunes or another platform to help other folks join our discussion.